Skyborn, Episode 12, Masquerade, by K.G. Lockrams. It's the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college. It's been a year since Pip raped me. I know I'm HIV negative. I have the new car my grandmother bought me, which ensured my ability to continue with college. Her act of kindness enraged my mother, who felt as if I had robbed her of her inheritance. I continued to figure out my sexual identity in an era when I had no access to data or information beyond what I saw from the media, read in books, or watched in movies. I'm excelling in school and about to begin my sophomore year. I'm barely able to sleep and have begun to self-medicate my fear, anxiety, and emotional pain. The summer brought two noteworthy changes into my life. First, I made a new friend in college that summer, Don. He was a teacher's assistant for a couple of professors I had. He was in his early 30s and lived with his girlfriend in a mobile home not far from the college. I don't remember what ignited our friendship, probably our sense of humor, but it caught quickly, and he would go on to become something of an older brother to me. Second, the computer lab picked up a new staff member, Carrie. Carrie was my age, bright, and a fundamentalist Christian. She was tall for a girl had blonde hair almost down to her waist, and gray-blue eyes behind simple, clear-framed glasses. She dressed in mostly homemade clothing, which usually consisted of a blouse and a denim skirt. She couldn't style her hair or wear makeup, and demonstrated consistent talent at technology and computer programming. I was intrigued by the juxtaposition of her faith and technical skill. For some reason, I had assumed the two would somehow be mutually exclusive. Within days of having met each other, I confided in Ginger my belief that Carrie had a crush on me. Apparently, Carrie had done the same. I'm going to tell you the same thing I told her, Ginger said. Calm down and let things sort themselves out. I was not attracted to Carrie, and she denied having any feelings for me. However, as I was leaving the lab one afternoon, about three weeks after she'd started working with us, she called out, I love you, which pretty much settled things. Carrie had thrown down the gauntlet by declaring her love for me. It took me until the spring semester to convince her the feeling was not mutual. The difficult part for me was that I really liked her. The fundamentalist Christianity put me off in multiple ways, and given what fundamentalist Christians have always said about homosexuals, I didn't see her as an ally in my journey, which was frustrating because we clicked in every other way. Our intellect, our sense of humor, our passion to be more than we were, our complicated family dynamics and history, our interests in culture, and our commitment to school. We also both had incredibly low self-esteem, and neither of us knew what the hell we wanted out of life beyond good grades and to learn all we could while we had the opportunity to do so. One day, Carrie and I were studying together in the college library. Do you smell that? I asked. What? She said without looking up from her book, which told me she knew exactly what I was talking about. Her deflection annoyed me. I keep getting this whiff of something sweet and cloying, she kept reading. If I didn't know you better, I'd swear you were wearing perfume. I waited. I can't wear perfume, she said. I put my pen down and waited her out. But I am wearing pheromones, she said and looked up from her book over the rim of her glasses with a small smile. That's a bit of a stretch, don't you think? How so? They've clearly mixed it with some sort of scent. Isn't that a fine line? What's next? Lipstick? Contact lenses? A perm? 
Her eyes flashed her annoyance, and she went back to reading her book. Fine, I'll bite. Why are you wearing pheromones? Here, smell! She sat up, reached across the table, and put the underside of her wrist under my nose. I quickly leaned back in my chair to get her hand out of my face. First, I didn't like anyone that close to my face. It was legacy from my physical abuse. And second, the stuff smelled sickeningly sweet. I can smell you just fine without you putting your wrist in my face. What's the point? Why are you wearing them? They're supposed to attract men. We've been over this, I said. What makes you think I'm trying to attract you? Beside the fact that I'm the only guy you hang out with, you told me you love me, and you just waved your wrist full of pheromones under my nose? She tried to look hurt, but then we both started laughing. Shh, the librarian chastised. We made the best of our awkward and unlikely friendship. We took classes together, studied together, worked together, and often ate lunch and dinner together. The four of us in the lab, Ginger, Carrie, Lance, and I, had formed a tight bond and would hang out at least one night every weekend at Ginger's house. She was 29 and had owned her own house for several years. I was coming into my own at this age. I kept the weight off and was working out. I'd grown another inch. I was working a second job at a high-end retailer and, thanks to the store discount, could afford better clothing. And girls had taken notice. There was a woman in my evening computer science course that fall semester who was about 10 years older than me. We sat next to each other, and I was also the TA for the class. Between being the TA and helping her with assignments in the computer lab, we'd become friendly. One night she asked if I could give her a ride home. She said she didn't live far from the college, so I said sure. The area around the college was rural, with many gravel and dirt roads to people's homes. So when she told me to pull onto a small dirt road, I didn't think anything of it. Pull over up here, she said. Do you mind if we talk a bit before you take me home? Sure, what's up? You know I'm married. Yeah. Do you have a problem with that? She asked. Why would I have a problem with... And before I could finish the sentence, she'd unbuckled her seatbelt and was in my lap on the driver's seat. Whoa, I said. And before I could say anything else, she was French kissing me. Other than surprise, I felt nothing. I gently but firmly grabbed her by her biceps and pushed her back into the passenger seat. Oh my god, I'm so embarrassed, she said and put her hands on her face. You don't have to be embarrassed, but I don't understand what's going on. That's why I like you. You're so fucking innocent, she said, and just so sweet. I don't know what to say. I'm not interested in you that way. You said you needed a ride. I didn't mind giving you one. I was just trying to be kind to make sure you got home. I didn't know you wanted something more. She abruptly sat back in her seat, fastened her seatbelt, and said, Fine, just take me home. Okay, but I don't know where that is. She let out an irritated noise and proceeded to give me terse directions to her house. The next week, she sat next to a guy somewhere between us in age. I overheard her ask him for a ride home, and by the end of the semester, they were having an affair. He actually thanked me on break one night for not being into her. Dan asked me to come on a road trip with him to visit Kathy at her college for a weekend. A lot of space had been introduced into our friendship over the past year. I didn't know how to tell him what had happened with Pip. He was with Kathy every chance he had. We were both busy between jobs and school. There just weren't enough hours in the day, and our orbits were beginning to shift. All I remember about the trip is how easy it was for us to share space together that we listened to the album Tango in the Night by Fleetwood Mac entirely too many times, and how clear it was that he and Kathy were deeply in love and just perfect for each other. 
At home, my mother was struggling with menopause and getting some empty nest restlessness. I was home less and less due to school and work, and she didn't have much of a social life. Her loneliness caused her to lean into my life a bit more, but as I look back, it's difficult to picture a time when we were ever aligned for an extended period. She'd do or say something that would divide us yet again. Approach, avoid, approach, avoid. We were all together that Christmas. I learned my brother was hitting cocaine pretty hard. I can't remember if I caught him or he offered me some. Given generosity was never his thing, I probably had caught him. He lived a couple of states away, but was close enough to make appearances for holiday dinners. He continued to be a pompous ass. He'd sit at the old dining room table, now in our eat-in kitchen, and act like the head of the household, doling out his pearls of wisdom, which our mother encouraged. He'd also begun to heavily rewrite his backstory, making it much better than it actually was. My sister and I would roll our eyes at each other. It wasn't worth the energy to remind him what had actually happened. He believed his revisionist history, and there was no challenging it. My sister had graduated college and was working for one of the big four accounting firms. Our connection was once again tenuous. I imagine, like me, she yearned for some connection, but our family was incapable of connecting, which left her in limbo. It seemed the only thing that bound us together as a family was the trauma that we had in common. It was all we had in common, and it made for depressing dinner conversation. Ginger and I had become very close. When I could only take so much of my family, I would often escape to her house. She lived 20 miles away, but that never stopped me from making the drive. Her father was out of the picture. She was an only child, and it was just her and her mom. They lived separately, but were close emotionally and enjoyed each other's company. Her mother was one of the most kind women I'd ever met. She took a genuine interest in me, was willing to listen, offered advice when sought, and never hesitated to feed me. The three of us spent a lot of time together between both their homes, eating dinners, watching TV, and just talking about our lives and the world at large. Ginger had become like a big sister to me. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, I got several insights into the friends I'd made at college. What's going on with you and Carrie these days? Ginger asked. The same. She's so clearly in love with me, but... But what? It's complicated, I said. You really aren't interested in her? You spend so much time together. It's more that... I don't know what I'm interested in, generally speaking. Oh, she said. I didn't say it, and she didn't ask. You never know where life will take you, she said, then grew quiet. I waited as I could tell she was remembering something. The first man I ever loved, I was about your age. I thought he was the most amazing person, and I couldn't believe he was interested in me. Her eyes grew watery. What happened? It was summer. We were dating. He kept pressuring me to have sex with him. Don't get me wrong, I wanted to have sex with him. But I also wanted to be sure it was for the right reasons. I kept putting him off, and finally I realized if I didn't do it, I was probably going to lose him. She was clearly reliving something in her mind. I finally agreed, and we had sex. She was visibly choked up, and again took a moment. He stopped seeing me after that. I felt so foolish. I kept wondering what I did or didn't do to make him lose interest. Was I that bad at sex? Was I that unattractive? I mean, I know what I look like. And then my first canker sore appeared, and I found out I had herpes. He gave me herpes. Oh, Ginger. 
I haven't been with another man since because I don't want to do to them what he did to me. I don't want to give someone something they didn't bargain for. I wanted to tell her I could relate. I wanted to tell her about Pip. I wanted to tell her how I spent six months worried he may have given me a death sentence. But then I'd have to explain how, and I was afraid of the possibility she'd reject me. I desperately needed her friendship. I also didn't want to make this moment about myself. I said nothing. She wiped away a tear. And all of that to say, take as much time as you need to figure out whatever it is you need to figure out. There's no rush. You're younger than you probably feel. I know at your age, I thought I knew everything. Man, was I wrong. She got up from the sofa and walked over to the bookcase and took a mini bottle of Jack Daniels from the shelf. Do you know what's in here? She asked. It was not liquid. It was a kind of powder. I shook my head. My father. He died from drinking too much of this shit. I took some of his ashes and put them in here. I think he would have gotten a kick out of it in a twisted kind of way. It reminds me to be careful of what I desire. I took that in. She put the bottle back on the shelf. You'll figure it out, Kit. You have so much ahead of you. I walked over to her and held her, and we both had an unexpected cry. Out of what felt like nowhere, Lance started talking about killing himself and didn't show up to work one day. I let Carrie and Ginger know, and we all spent the better part of a day driving around to all of the places we could think he may have gone. He eventually turned up back home. His brother would only say he had a meltdown over something. Lance never discussed what the matter was with any of us. He withdrew a bit from our circle for a time. I often wondered if he was embarrassed or ashamed, but I didn't know how to ask. All I could do was tell him I was there for him if he needed me, and invite him to do things. We would get together, just the two of us, hang out at his parents' house. But he never spoke of it, and I respected his privacy. Not long after, Don went off the meds I didn't know he was taking, and showed up at my house in the middle of a psychotic break. He kept talking about a rose. I have to find the rose kit. The rose. I need the rose or I'm going to die. It's the rose. It's always been the rose. He vacillated from fits of laughing, to tears, to shouting in a rage, back to laughter, to threats of killing himself, to threats of violence to me if I tried to stop him, all in roughly a seven-minute period of time, and all the while talking about a rose. It was a terrifying experience for me, and I felt utterly helpless. Thankfully, he managed to get himself into an inpatient care facility and got his meds adjusted. The next time we saw each other, he was standing outside one of the modular classrooms where I had a class and he was the TA. He was smoking a cigarette. We made eye contact, but as I approached the building, he looked down at the ground and wouldn't say a word. I walked up to him and stopped about a foot away and stood silently in front of him. He still wouldn't look up. So, that was something, I said. He took a drag from a cigarette. Not many people come back after they've seen the real me, he said. I don't think that was the real you. That was just part of the real you. You don't scare me. Well, you scared the shit out of me that day. But in general, not so much. He finally looked up at me. He exhaled his last drag and let out a short, shaky sob. Just the one. We stepped toward each other and gave each other a big bear hug. He cracked a joke. We laughed, went inside, and moved forward with our friendship and our lives. Not as if nothing had happened, but with the knowledge that there was more to him than he had first wanted me to believe. Carrie would often allude to an abusive past, but never went into details, and I didn't push. 
There was something about an ex-boyfriend who had been physically rough and a relative who had sexually terrorized her, if not outright molested her. She struggled with her beliefs and the life she wanted for herself. And at that age, didn't we all? And Dan. Dan was just fine. He knew who he was. He knew what he wanted. He was in love. He was basically my control group during those years of my life. At this age, I'd often just fall into things. My father and mother had always controlled the narrative of my life. Growing up, I was told what I did or didn't want or need, and also challenged at every turn about what I saw or didn't see, what happened or didn't happen. It left me with an inability to know what I wanted for myself and how to pursue it. Being gaslit for so long impacted my critical thinking skills. Being stuck in an endlessly reactive model of trauma made it difficult for me to plan rather than react. Being raised to be seen and not heard inhibited my ability to find my voice. Being raised as an extension of my parents to fulfill their wishes and whims left me devoid of an intact identity or the ability to even know what I wanted, needed, or desired. If I were asked what I wanted from life, I'd have answered, I don't know, because I didn't, because I wasn't raised to think about my own desires and goals. I agonized over trying to be whoever it was everyone else wanted me to be. But in coming to truly know Dan, Ginger, Carrie, Lance, and Don, I learned most everyone has something they're struggling to keep tucked away out of sight. Except Dan. Dan was the most together friend I'd ever had. It's a rare thing to find people in our lives with whom we can be our authentic selves without fear of reprisal or rejection. Easter came early this year, and my brother and sister came home for the holiday. Another meal spent talking about all the damage our father had unleashed upon us. I didn't have much to say. It was now clear to me that our trauma was indeed the only thing we had in common. I had reached the point where I needed to make some concrete decisions about my future and had no idea who I was or what I wanted, other than a very high-level picture for my life. For a time, in eighth grade, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I wanted to understand why my family was the way it was. In support of this, my grandmother got me a subscription to Psychology Today that year for my birthday. I remember how uncomfortable it made my parents each time it arrived in the mail. They launched an all-out campaign to talk me out of pursuing that field. You know who becomes a psychiatrist? Crazy people. Their commentary, coupled with my experiences with the guidance counselor that same year, worked. In the end, I moved away from that dream for myself. I knew I wanted to have children. My desire to have a family weighed heavily on me the more I realized I was probably gay. Adoption wasn't legal for lesbians and gays. We weren't seen as fit parents. What a tragedy that the only societal prerequisite for being considered to be a fit parent was having the ability to procreate. A low bar, given the parents I had. I knew I wanted to graduate with a bachelor's degree, but I was struggling to commit to a major. As I entered my final semester of junior college, I had to figure it out. Declare a major, apply to a four-year college, and find the means to pay for it. Enter. Joy. Joy was 16 years older than me. She had returned to get her degree after her children were old enough to be somewhat self-sufficient. We started at the college the same year and had a majority of our initial classes together. We were both equally serious about doing well, enjoyed one another's company, and would often join the same clusters of people for group projects. We knew one another's strengths and leveraged them successfully. I've been thinking about you lately, she said to me one night on a class break. Oh, This is going to sound painfully maternal, but what are your plans for next year? I'm still trying to decide. I thought as much. 
Here's a crazy idea. Why don't you do what I'm doing? Major in secondary education mathematics. There are so many incentives right now due to the teacher shortage. We could even apply to the same college, and then we'd both know someone when we started. Selfishly, I'm a bit uncomfortable given my age going into my junior year in a more traditional college setting. I'm sure I'll be the oldest person in every class. Not if you count the teacher, I offered. Not helpful. Where are you thinking of going? Well, that's the best part. The same place your sister went. It's perfect. You'd know the campus a bit. It's in-state, so the tuition won't kill you. And they're offering financial aid and incentives for people who declare for secondary ed math. She could see my wheels turning. There's also a full scholarship you can apply for. I am. We both have the grades and the coursework to qualify. What is it? It's the Krista McAuliffe Memorial Scholarship. It's basically full tuition. I used to substitute teach at my old middle school, and it was true that I was now excelling in math and science. Teaching would ensure I'd have a life surrounded by children. And given I'd watched the Challenger mission explode, there was a certain symmetry to receiving a scholarship that had been created in memory of the teacher on board who had died. I'll think about it, I said. Don't think too long. The deadline for fall admission and the scholarship is in two weeks. The simple fact of the matter was, I could not afford out-of-state tuition. Choi was right about there being a certain amount of comfort in going somewhere familiar, and my sister lived not far from the college. I also knew a couple of people from high school who went there. One was a good friend of Dan's. I did some research and realized this would be my best bet for getting accepted into a four-year college and being able to afford it. I decided to do it and send in the appropriate applications to the college and for the scholarship. The spring semester was pretty much unremarkable, and as much as I remained on course to earn nearly straight A's, I was waiting to hear whether or not I'd been accepted to the university and qualified for the scholarship. A new girl came into my life, Jean. We were the same age and were taking a class together that spring. She was hitting on me hard. No matter where I was, she managed to find me. She was always giving and seeking praise and touching me every chance she had. On my hand, my bicep, my shoulder, my back. She never missed an opportunity. She knew Carrie was rumored to have a thing for me and seemed to make extra effort to find me when I was with her. Whether in the lab or in the library, Jean would appear and insert herself into whatever it was Carrie and I were doing, making sure to touch me and then leave. She did this one day as Carrie and I were studying in the library. She certainly does like to put her paws on you, Carrie said. I've noticed. I don't know what to do. I don't reciprocate. I don't initiate. And you don't tell her to stop, she observed, which is the same as encouraging her through inaction. She made a fair point. My physical sexual boundaries were a mess. I didn't like to hurt anyone, and I didn't like rejecting someone. I had to figure this out, and there seemed no way to do it without hurting her feelings. So I did nothing. I saw Joy on campus the week after spring break. Have you heard? I asked, referring to an acceptance letter. I have. I'm in, and I got the scholarship. Me too, I said. You don't sound happy about it. I am. I wasn't. Or I wasn't unhappy about it. It just wasn't my dream so much as a means to an end. A degree, a way to pay for it, and a way to move forward. I only knew one direction. Forward. So I took the path before me to advance. When the time comes, let's look at the fall class schedules together and take as many classes as we can, Joy said. Okay. Will you be commuting or living on campus, she asked. On campus. That will be exciting, she said. And on that point, I agreed. I couldn't wait to be on my own.
Things started to wind down for the semester. Even though I was three credits short, I was approved to walk at commencement. I had to complete an elective over the summer, and since it was pottery, no one seemed worried about my ability to complete my credits. In mid-May, the college held an annual graduation dinner dance, which was similar to a prom. The venue changed every year, and this year it was being held on a small cruise ship which operated on a nearby waterway. Two days before the cruise, having no one else to go with, Carrie and I decided to go together. I was very clear on the point that we were going as friends. I thought Carrie had gotten over her crush on me by now, but the way she reacted around Jean, she clearly had not. The Friday before the cruise, Jean found Carrie and I studying in the library. Do you two ever not study? She asked as she approached our table. No, Carrie said. And that's why we have the GPAs we have, and you have the GPA you have. Jean didn't take the bait, sat down next to me, and put her hand on my forearm. Carrie and my eyes locked. She rolled hers and went back to studying. Kit, I've decided I'm going on the cruise after all. Carrie looked up. Jean said to her, See you there, and left the library. Carrie abruptly packed up her things without saying a word and left me sitting at the table. What the hell was that, I thought. I caught up with Carrie later in the day in the computer lab as we were picking up our paychecks. I'm not going on the cruise. Have fun with Jean, she said. Carrie, it's not like that. I'm not interested. Suit yourself, I said. We got our checks and went our separate ways. In the end, Carrie attended the cruise. She didn't speak to me, but I was glad she went, for her own sake. Jean was also there, and I noticed she was pretty much touching any available boy she could find, for which I was glad. I didn't want to have to deal with it. At this point, I didn't see myself with a woman or a man. I just saw myself as spending the rest of my life with no romantic partner. It was an awkward night. The following week, I found out I received two more scholarships. They were a few hundred dollars each, one from the college I'd be attending, and another from the county's Retired Teachers Association. I was all set for paying for school, housing, and my meal plan. That weekend, my mother was out of town for an orthopedics conference. Lance's older brother bought us half a keg, and we threw a party that Friday night. We were planning on a large turnout, hoping people would want to blow off some steam before finals. But because of finals, it turned out people didn't want to drink as much as we thought they might, and we were left with at least a quarter keg of beer. We decided to have another party that Saturday. We each called a few people, and somehow Jean got word and also showed up. Around 1 a.m., there were only four of us left, and Lance had already left for home. It was two of my guy friends and Jean. To blow through the beer, we started playing Pass Out which was a very complex game where you drank copious amounts of alcohol until you literally passed out. American college students never have been overly sophisticated when it came to binge drinking. A sad and embarrassing game of strip poker ensued, and around four we were all starving. One of the guys offered to take us to the truck stop and buy us breakfast. At the restaurant, Jean sat next to him, across from me, and couldn't keep her hands off him. It was fascinating to watch in as much as I thought, Problem solved. We got back to my house close to five. The guy Jean had been molesting at breakfast instantly passed out on the love seat in the living room. I pulled out the sofa bed for the other guy and went to turn down my mother's bed for Jean. Jean, you can sleep in here, I called out. She called back, clearly from my room. I want to sleep in your bed with you. I was barely able to stay awake at this point and wasn't up for an argument. Fine. 
I had a full-size bed, and she'd already crawled in, wearing a t-shirt and underwear. I did the same. It was a tight fit. She kissed me on the mouth, and I kissed her back. She put her hand on my crotch and began rubbing my penis through my underwear. Friction equaled erection, and I responded. I put my hand on her breast and rubbed her nipple with my thumb. She pulled my erection out of my underwear and started gently jerking me off. I could have easily gone through the motions and had an absolutely meaningless sexual experience with Jean. But it wasn't who I was, what I wanted, and I wasn't attracted to her. I didn't want to be with her. I didn't know much, but I knew I didn't want this. I had to do something. We were facing each other lying side by side. She embraced me and initiated a roll to pull me on top of her. I chose to continue that momentum and rolled us both out of bed. We landed on a small plastic table and metal Garfield trash can, crushing both the table and the can with our combined weight. Her arm was under the small of my back, and we were wedged between the bed and the wall. Although a bit painful, it effectively broke the mood. She managed to get up and climbed back into bed. She leaned over the bed, above me. Do you have any condoms? I pretended to be unconscious. I spent an uncomfortable few hours lying atop a broken table and trash can but the problem had been solved. It was worth every ache and pain the next few days, and I didn't have to actually reject her. Finals began that Monday. I was doing well in all my classes, but I was stuck on my final project for programming. It was worth 50% of my final grade, and I couldn't get the damn thing to compile. I was working on a program that would allow the user to input all of the information about their music collection into a searchable database. I thought it could be used at record stores to help people find the right song, artist, or album with just part of the information. I couldn't figure out what I was missing. I was so close, but my mistake was eluding me. I was going to tank my average, and that was not an option. It was 9 o'clock in the evening, the night it was due. Ginger, Carrie, Lance, and I were in the computer lab finishing our projects together. Actually, they'd already finished theirs and were impatiently waiting for me to do the same. Kit, we have to get out of here, Ginger said. The security guard has been in here twice and wants to lock the building down so he can go home. If you can't figure it out yet, you're not going to tonight. Ginger, I can't fail this project. I get it, and you won't, but you need to step away from it. I called the professor, and he said you have the weekend to turn it in. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Called a perk of working in his lab, being his TA, and getting an A on literally everything you've ever done in his classes. I could live with that. Okay, everybody, we're packing it in, Ginger declared, and we're going to my house to celebrate the end of the semester and the end of our time together in the computer lab. We packed up and headed to Ginger's house, where I continued to obsess over what I was missing that prevented my program from working. Snap out of it, Lance said and handed me a beer. Ginger had gotten soda for Carrie and beer for the rest of us. She ordered pizzas when we got to her house, an old twin from the early 20th century. By my third beer, I had to use the bathroom, which was on the second floor. I was standing at the toilet, taking a whiz, when the error with my program suddenly came to me. I figured it out, I called down to everyone. I heard a tired, half-hearted cheer of support. I flushed, went to the sink, washed my hands, and looked at myself in the mirror, making eye contact with my reflection. I hated making eye contact with myself in a mirror. It forced some kind of connection within myself that made me uncomfortable, so I avoided it. 
My rape, on top of my sexual, physical, and psychological abuse, had fractured my ability to align my mind, spirit, and body. I separated the three, each carrying some piece of me, but separate from the others. It was how I coped. It was how I survived my trauma. And I looked into my blue eyes, and I connected with my pain, and my sorrow, and my fatigue, and my loneliness. And I said to my reflection, I figured it out. I'm gay. Epilogue. As I wrote and produced this episode, I was not myself. I felt empty and joyless and lonely, and I couldn't understand why. And then it occurred to me, that was exactly how I felt underneath everything else during those years. I was reconnecting with having felt invisible, false, afraid, tired, sad, and fundamentally alone. Those were the years I began building a family of choice. I think we have two families in life, the one we're born into and the one we choose. My birth family and I had less and less in common as I grew older and came into my own. I was subconsciously creating a family of people who understood and supported me. I didn't realize it at the time, but as I looked back, that was when it started. I found three brothers in Dan, Lance, and Don. I found sisters in Carrie and Ginger. And although Carrie's mom doesn't get nearly the time she deserves in this episode, she was like a mother to me. And Joy. Joy was somewhere in between older sister and mother. For those two years, I had a wonderful support network, and as much as I was able to let them in. Everyone in my immediate family was so damaged. Our mother was so wounded on so many levels, I think it took all of her energy to keep herself together. She just didn't have any room for any of her children, with the exception of her firstborn, who continued to shine the brightest in her eyes, no matter what he did. I was prone to nosebleeds from ninth grade in high school until I had a blood vessel in my nose cauterized in my mid-twenties. That house we had moved into had electric baseboard heat, and we augmented it with a kerosene heater just inside the front door because electric heat was, and is, a costly way to heat a home. The two together removed all humidity from the air. My brother was doing cocaine regularly at this point in his life, and nosebleeds are a common side effect of that. One evening, after he'd been home for Christmas and left, high on coke most of the time, I got a nosebleed while sitting at the kitchen table. I tilted my head back, pinched my nose, stood up, and walked to the bathroom. My mother called out, You're having a lot of nosebleeds. Are you doing cocaine? She was absolutely serious. I kept on walking and called back, Wrong son. What does that mean? she demanded. You're a nurse, the mother of two sons. You know perfectly well what that means. But she couldn't bring herself to see the truth. No matter what he did to himself or to others, she could never see him for who he continually showed himself to be. Growth is an awkward, uncomfortable, and often painful process. But you can't get to the other side of trauma without taking that awkward, uncomfortable, and painful journey. No one can take it for you. People can come with you on the trip, but it is your trip. Always remember that. It's your trip, because it's your work to do, because it's your life, and you're the prize you get at the end of doing that work. In the end, 
You may not be the person you were when you started, but you'll be more comfortable in your skin and all the stronger and more intact for it.